You may be seated. Well, good morning. It is so good to see you. Isn't it a beautiful day? I think you said that louder, but you're all muffled behind your masks and hats and everything like that. I, I feel like I don't know who's here today. Can't see half of you. <laughs> but uh, it is good to be gathered with God's people. Say amen really loudly this time. Amen. Amen. Well, before we get into our study of God's word together, I want to uh, thank uh, everyone um, who has already responded, and this is many people, uh, with such generosity to our Christmas offering and also to our uh, opportunity to, to give extra before the end of the year. And if you haven't heard about that yet, uh, I want to just let you know, we have uh, received a very important opportunity to refinance uh, our current debt, which will save us uh, about $100,000 a year for the next 10 years, which of course is about a million dollars. And quite simply, just for us to qualify, it's crucial that we have as much capital on hand as possible. And this just means practically that anything you're able to give above and beyond your regular giving before December 31st will be very helpful. It doesn't matter if it's to the general fund. It doesn't matter if it's to a Christmas offering. It doesn't matter if you do breakthrough or you get ahead on breakthrough. Um, it, it doesn't matter. Um, whatever comes in will be of use. And I just mentioned last week that if every Southwinds family gave just an ex extra $200, that's an additional $100,000 that we would have on hand. And so we, we know not everybody may be able to do that. We also know that many of us could do a lot more than that. And I just, I just want to put this out here. We're just letting you know. And um, as I do today, I want to say thank you to everyone who's already given. Many of you have already given generously and sacrificially. Uh, we still have ways to go. Uh, but I also want to say thanks in advance uh, for those who will give. And I also want to add um, a brief word about uh, Christmas Eve. Um, we are planning what we think is going to be some uh, fun, family-oriented activities um, out here that we're calling the Christmas Experience. And just uh, to clar for clarity, we're, we're requesting that uh, people take uh, precautions, that they wear their masks and socially distance, and, and uh, we're going to do our best to sanitize throughout. Uh, and we're doing this because some have asked the question, we've raised the question, uh, we're doing this because we, we understand that outdoor transmission um, is really very, very low. At the same time, our, our time here is going to be brief, and we believe it's possible for us, just like today, uh, to have a safe time uh, together. Uh, and in the same way, Christmas Eve worship is going to be brief. Um, if you haven't heard yet, we are going to be asking you to bring chairs just like uh, you do on, on Sunday mornings. Uh, the service is going to be brief enough. Some of you may just prefer to stand. That's fine, too. And we're going to sing. We're going to read God's word. We're going to hear a very brief message. And, and then we're going to have our own very, very special 2020 candle lighting. So you'll just want to be here for that. And uh, I hope you'll uh, feel comfortable enough to invite a friend um, in this very unusual and strange time that we're living in right now. Well, you know, we are just a few days from Christmas. We're just a few more days uh, from beginning a new year, and I think we would all agree that we're finding ourselves in a place that's unlike uh, anything we've ever been in before. And this last week, I was reminded of 
a line in C.S. Lewis's classic book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and I think it kind of sums up a lot of what many of us are feeling. And if you've read the book, you know the story. You know how a little girl named Lucy goes through this magic wardrobe. She enters into the, the magical land of Narnia, and when she arrives, it's winter. And very soon as she's looking around, she meets this character. His name is Mr. Tumnus, and he tells her that Narnia is always in winter, Because Narnia is under the spell of the evil white witch. And he says this, it is winter in Narnia and has been for ever so long. Always winter, but never Christmas. And I was just thinking, I don't know that there's ever been a more striking description uh, of what it feels like to be hopeless. Always winter, but never Christmas. And I, I, I really believe a lot of people are feeling that right now, this sense of, hopelessness, this feeling that everything's terrible, it's never going to ever get better. I I saw a poll that was taken recently that said 48% of Americans are feeling hopeless because of COVID, because of the economy, because of political unrest. And guess what? That poll was taken in June before the last six months. I can't even imagine what the, the poll would be right now. You know, hopelessness is not good. Hopelessness leads to all kinds of bad consequences, and if you've been there, you know it excuses an action. You, you, you don't think there's any hope, so why are you going to even try to do anything? It excuses bad behavior. Some of you have been there. You're, you're involved in something uh, that's not good, maybe a sinful habit of some kind. And, and one of Satan's tools, by the way, is when you are sinning, he, he first of all tells you, it's okay, you deserve this. And then as soon as you enter into the sin, he tells you, you're a terrible person. You'll never be any good. You're never going to get out of this, so just keep doing it. And that's that hopelessness. You're trapped. Why should I even try to get out of it? And hopelessness also creates kind of a negative thought loop. You know, I'm, I'm hopeless, and I'm just looking around for more hopeless things. That's all I see. But on the other hand, hopefulness has all kinds of positive outcomes. I I saw some research from about two years ago that showed, among other things, the more hopeful people feel about their personal future, one, the more productive they are, two, the less affected by stress they are, three, they're more compassionate, and four, they're physically healthier. Hope is a vital thing. And I think that's why it's so important for us to understand what it means to receive the gift of hope, and that's what we're talking about today. We're going to be studying a passage in the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah that God inspired over 2,700 years ago. It's a familiar prophecy, I think, to many of you, a prophecy about the the coming Messiah who we know today is Jesus of Nazareth, God's son. And, And God had Isaiah write these words to give his people then hope. So this is God's word. It's Isaiah 11. Verses 1 through 9, this is where we're going to be, and you'll, you'll want to get your, your, your copies of God's Word out and open if you're able to. And also there's um, an outline to take notes on on the app if you'd like to do that. Beginning in verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. 
Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And this is the word of the Lord and all God's people say, amen. You know, if you are, are feeling some hopelessness right now, these verses contain one truth that really could change everything for you, that could give you hope. And before I tell you what that truth is, I need to fill you in on some of the background. Isaiah 11 was written in hopeless times for the Jewish people around 700 years before Christ. They are under Assyrian attack in the north. They will soon be under Babylonian attack in the south. For centuries, they have left God and chased after idols, and they've had one corrupt ruler after another corrupt ruler, and they are living in the consequences of their sin, and they're feeling hopeless. And Isaiah is actually writing to tell them it's about to get worse. It's winter. But then he says, don't give up. So what did he tell them to give them hope? What, what kept them going through their dark winters? And historians will tell you it was an idea. It was an idea all through the book of Isaiah, an idea that grows and grows through the whole Bible, an idea that actually prepared the way for the arrival of Jesus. It's an idea that's still powerful today. Christ's followers living under persecution have taken so much hope from this idea, and you can too if you're wondering, well, how do I move from hopeless to hopeful? Right now, right now in this COVID winter. And this is how they did it. You're going to see here in Isaiah 11 three aspects of one powerful perspective-altering idea. And I'll describe these aspects, and you see if you can guess what it is. The first aspect is they believe God still has a plan. God still has a plan, and it's grim now, but God still has a plan for us, and his plan involves a man. Isaiah 11.1, 1, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. So what does this mean? Well, it is poetic metaphor that it takes the reader back to some historical realities. And historically, about 300 years before Isaiah wrote this, uh, the kingdom of Israel had their kind of Camelot phase, the reign of David, their best king ever. And, and David was one of Jesse's son. but by the sons, but by the time Isaiah wrote, Jesse's lineage had been chopped down, and Isaiah says it was like a dead stump. But he prophesies. He prophesies that one day a new king will rise from Jesse's lineage. And about 700 years later, a baby was born, and his name was Jesus. And Jesus was from the house of Jesse. This was his family tree. A shoot came up. And this was the expectation of Messiah that someone anointed by God in David's lineage, a future king, would bring in a better future for everyone. And this just captured the Jewish people's imagination through centuries of hardship. You say, why? Well... Among other things, it's because it meant God will not forget us. If God still has a plan for you, he has not forgotten you. 
And so they, they understood we're not at the mercy of the Assyrians or the Babylonians. They will not have the last word. God will have the last word. And so we have hope. And I'm telling you this morning, you need to hear today that even in your sorrows, even in your tragedies, even in your illnesses, even in COVID, even in unemployment, even in business difficulties, God has not forgotten you. And no matter what it looks like, whatever is going on in your life, those things will not have the last word. Write it down. Never forget it. God will have the last word in your life. And God's words are good words. And so that's where this idea starts. God still has a plan. God's plan is to send a man, and he won't forget us, and God has the last word. And then this promise of Messiah gets developed further. Secondly, I can trust God's Messiah. God still has a plan. I can trust God's Messiah, and he's going to send this Messiah. Uh, Isaiah describes him like this in verses 2 and 3. says, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. So those first hearers, what they were hearing was, after all these centuries of terrible rulers, there's going to be one ruler who won't be out just for himself and his power. He will love and serve God. He will do right by the people he rules. He will not judge others by externals, by wealth or physical beauty or reputation or social class. And you'll recognize this is the kind of ruler the world's always been starving for especially the Jewish people at this point, and God is promising them one day, you will have a ruler who is wise and kind. And so you see this developing, this idea giving them hope that in the bleakest of times, God has a plan, and he's going to send a Messiah, and we can totally trust his Messiah. And then here's the third part of this idea, and it's really the best part. It's the most mind-blowing part. Number three, God's Messiah will make all things right. All things right. And, and at this point, and this is really the rest of this passage, Isaiah just goes off uh, on this poetic riff as he develops and unfolds this idea of how powerful and transformative this Messiah will be. He says several things about him. The first thing he says is Messiah will end injustice. He will end all injustice. I mean, can you imagine a world like that? In verse 4, he begins to paint the picture. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. And so he's going to end injustice. Messiah is going to get justice for oppressed people, for poor people. And what about the people who've been oppressing the poor people? He's going to wipe them out. With the rod of his mouth, the breath of his lips, that's how easy it's going to be for Messiah. He'll slay the wicked. He'll make all things right. And finally, finally, oppression will cease. In verse 5, he says, righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. And this is a poetic way of saying this is what's going to characterize and personify the Messiah. Righteousness, faithfulness, he won't be corruptible. Now, if you're reading this, about this point, you might have the idea that Messiah is going to be like some kind of enlightened civil servant, you know, like, kind of like the perfect president. And that alone would be great. Amen? But then as uh, Tim Keller says, 
this passage sort of bursts, bursts its banks. And the, the poetic water kind of comes up and just sort of floods everything. Second thing Isaiah says about this Messiah is that he will also end conflict. He's going to end all conflict. Look at the way he puts this. These are some very famous verses. You probably know them uh, for, from other contexts. You've heard them. Verse 6 says, the wolf will live with the lamb. The, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. I mean, can you even begin to picture that? Verse 7, the cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. I was actually looking around on the internet this last week for some images of some stuff I'd heard about, and I found them. If you want to see these pictures, you can look them up yourself, or you can watch the message online. But there are these pictures out there, some videos of these kind of strange animal friendships. You go online, you can find stories like this one. There's this village in India where a leopard shows up every night to be cleaned by a cow. This cow's like his adopted mom. I mean, so the leopard's not eating the cow. He's letting the cow clean him. And it's just like it's out of a, you look at a picture like that, it's like right out of the Bible verse. And there's another one. There's a stray cat who drops into the pen at a zoo of an Asiatic black bear. By the way, bears are carnivorous, right? And this bear is cleaning the cat clean. They just kind of hang out together. And then, then there's this one. This is somebody's own pets. But there's Sharky the pit bull. And he's with his friend Max the cat. And, and then there's a bunch of little chicks that are hanging out with the cat and the pit bull. And they just all kind of live in harmony. And, you know, when you see stuff like that, it's kind of captivating, isn't it? And I, I think it is because these are reminders of something deep, something that God is actually saying in these verses. Something about the way the world was supposed to be, the way God created it. But what you need to know about this passage, it's not just about animals. It's bigger than that. It's this poet, poetic expression that's also saying that even longtime human enemies can live at peace. There's actually a parallel passage in Isaiah a few chapters later. Isaiah 19.23 says, In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. And these were mortal enemies. These were world powers in this time. You know, translated to 21st century, we're talking like this is Israel and Iran. This is America and China. I mean, you can give your own examples. The point is, when you have a picture of the future like that, a picture of the future which God guarantees, it brings you hope, lasting hope, even when life seems darkest. I'll give you another example. In the 1964 Nobel Peace Prize ceremony, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his acceptance speech, and it's interesting, in his acceptance speech, he explained why he was still able to have hope, and, and that really was a good question in 1964, because despite all of the things he had done for years and years and years, at that point, they had seen relatively little progress in his quest for civil rights, and he had endured bomb threats and all kinds of vile insults and betrayals. So how could someone like him still have a sense of hope? And he explains it in his speech. And the reason I bring it up, because in his speech, he quotes Isaiah 11. 
He says, I refuse to accept the view that mankind is so tragically bound to the starlight midnight of racism and war that the bright daylight of peace and brotherhood can never become a reality. I believe unconditional love will have the final word in reality. I believe that one day mankind will bow before the altar of God triumphant over war and bloodshed, and the lion and the lamb shall lie down together. See, this faith, he said, gives us courage to face the future's uncertainties. This is what Isaiah 11 is telling us. When we truly trust God, when we truly trust that his promises here in his word describe the future, we can have hope. And it doesn't mean that you just sit around and wait for it to happen. Obviously, someone like Dr. King shows that was very active. But it means that we are now, as we wait, to be the kind of people that Messiah is, that righteousness and faithfulness define us, that, that his grace is changing us from the inside out. And when we are doing that and living that way, following Jesus, growing into him and becoming like him, when we have confidence that God will complete what he starts, that our labor in him is not in vain, that brings hope. Amen? And then Isaiah says a third thing, the Messiah will even end pain. And in his description, he just keeps taking this to another level, another level, another level. It's like all nature is going to be changed. Look at verse 8. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. And what this is is incredible imagery of a perfect, pain-free world. A world in which one day no one will ever get snake bit, not by a viper, not by a virus. As Max Lucado puts it, no more aspirin, no more chemo, no more wheelchairs, no more divorce or jail or broken hearts. And it's an incredibly beautiful picture. And then finally, this last one might shock you. The fourth thing he tells us is that Messiah will end religion. Some of you are going like, uh, what? <laughs> Did Pastor Mike just say these... Messiah going to end religion? That's right, because that's what the Bible says. Because one day there will be no more need for it. Look at verse 9. Isaiah writes, For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the same picture the prophet Jeremiah paints. Jeremiah 31, 34 says, No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. They will all know Lord, know the Lord. They will all know God. That means there will be no more need for pastors and priests and churches. That means I'll be out of a job and I'll be glad. <laughs> Do you understand that this is God's end game? This is his plan. God did not send his son Jesus to earth that first Christmas just so people would be nicer to each other. I mean, a lot of people think that Christianity is just about behaving, right? God sent Jesus to live and reveal to us his heart. He sent Jesus to us so we could know him. And the ultimate way God did that was the cross where Jesus died to totally transform us, to set us free from sin, to give us eternal life so that we could know the Father. 
That's actually what Isaiah predicts in the very next verse. The first part of verse 10 says, In that day the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. Just think about that, the whole world. And when you begin to let this kind of sink in, you get this, your heart gets captured by this idea that, that God cares for you so much, loves you so much, that he did not leave you in darkness, but he sent his one and his only son not to condemn you, but to save you through a sacrifice. And then that that same Messiah showed you what you had to look forward to after death through his resurrection. Put this all together, it adds up to one thing, and that is hope. Say hope. We have hope. And it's hard to see sometimes in this world, friends, but we have hope. We know that illness and corruption and death and injustice do not have the final word. Jesus will make all things right, and that includes your resurrection from the dead. And that just brings so much hope. And this is not just some intellectual truth for you to understand and agree with in your mind. This is something that needs to be driven deep deep into the very core of your being. Many of us, um, many of you probably like Dan and I do, watch some shows sometimes where some kind of makeover gets done. And there's just like a ton of these kind of shows. They have these shows for people. They have these shows for houses. They have all kinds of shows. You know about them. You watch them where people buy run-down houses, and they do these incredible transformations. I mean, there's like a fixer-upper or house-flipping show for just about every city. I keep waiting for them to do, you know, um, house flippers of Turlock or something like that. I don't know. You know, it's like it's everywhere. But if, if you ever ask yourself, why there's so many of these shows, why people like to watch these shows, why, why they seem to be so popular. And I, I think it's the idea of transformation. It's the idea of making something new. All of us, we, we recognize that our world, it, it's broken, it doesn't work, and, and we love whenever we can see renewal, even if it's just in one house or one person. See, Isaiah is saying in Isaiah 11 that God has an extreme makeover in store for the universe. And one day, one day, he's going to say, I am creating a new heaven and a new earth. And you will dwell with me. And I will dwell with you. And I will wipe every tear from every eye. And there will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, no more viruses. For the old order of things has passed away. Do you believe that? You see, when you believe that, and when you rest your life on that promise, you can have hope. You can have hope. That's actually a hope in what is known as the second advent. Christmas is actually the first advent. It's the first coming of Jesus. But the Bible tells us Jesus is coming again. Anybody looking forward to that day? And we can have confidence, friends, that just as surely as the first advent happened, we can look back in history, we see that it happened, we can know just as certainly that the second advent will happen. 
I want to give you a little secret, a little insight that might help you enjoy Christmas uh, kind of at a new level this year. And a lot of people just completely miss this. But if you listen carefully to the lyrics of many Christmas carols, a lot of them are not only just about the first advent, which is Christmas, they're also about the second advent, when Jesus comes back, when God completely renews his entire creation. Did you know that? I'll give you just a couple examples. You can look for some others. But how about Joy to the World? That's one of our favorites, right? Well, listen to these lyrics. This is Joy to the World, part of Joy to the World. No more let sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Far as, far as the curse is found. Do you still have weeds in your yard? If you don't have any weeds, we have um, some extras here. You can come pick up. (laughs) Thorns still infest the ground. but they won't always because Jesus who came is coming again. He's Messiah, and he will make all things right. Here's another example. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. This was written by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. I don't know if you you know the story behind the song. He's one of our most uh, famous poets in America, and Longfellow wrote these words when he was deeply grieving. His his wife had recently tragically died in a horrible house fire, and, and sometime shortly after that, his son uh, decided to join the Union Army to fight in the Civil War. His dad did not want him to go. He did it anyway, and he came back from the war horribly maimed. And so this one Christmas... Longfellow was just in this deep despair and grief, and he writes the poem that becomes the lyrics for this song that we sing. And this is part of it. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And you've probably sung the next verse and thought, this feels a little odd, you know, doesn't seem real Christmassy. But then he writes, and in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Kind of describes the way life feels a lot of times, right? Then in another verse, he writes, then pealed the bells more loud and deep, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. And what's he talking about? He's talking about when Jesus comes back. He's talking about the second advent, and that was a word for Longfellow, and maybe it is also a word for you today. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. In your life, friends, he is active. He is working. And, and, and as he writes earlier, his blessings are already flowing, right? But they will have their ultimate culmination at the second advent when we know finally the right shall prevail. I mean, do you see, do you see the point? Do you see the truth of all these messianic promises? Do you see the truth of Isaiah 11? Let me put it in real simple terms. You could summarize it this way. It gets better. It gets better. It will not always be this way. In fact, you might want to write it down, it gets perfect. It gets perfect. 
because of the Messiah. And the more that you and I trust that this is true, the more we'll have hope. This was the, the hope that marked those people who listened to Isaiah's prophecy. This was the hope that marked early Christians that helped them survive all kinds of persecution themselves. This is the hope that has been with God's people facing disease and famine and persecution and war for 2,000 years now. now. Here's my question. Why? Too often does it not mark us more consistently. I think that's a pretty complex question to answer. I think there are probably a number of reasons. But I think that maybe the biggest reason that we struggle with hope in times like this is we have it too easy. And yes, I said that, and I do know still it's 2020. But can we be honest with each other? Can we, like, talk? <laughs> we have so much abundance and comfort, don't we? And we get pretty much everything as soon as we want it. How many of you are mad right now because Amazon is not delivering next day or second day for free? I'm really, I'm really angry at the supply chain problems we're having in our culture right now. I mean, you might call this the Amazon or Netflix factor because pretty much everything is like on demand or one click, free shipping, next day delivery, right? And we think not only right, we think that is my right. You know, isn't that in the Constitution somewhere? It must be in the Bible. God must have said that's the way it's supposed to be. And we kind of think we have this right to instant gratification in all of our comfort, in all of our convenience. Yes, even in a time as difficult as 2020, we have forgotten how to wait and I think it's this weird year of delay and all the slow progress as 2020 unwinds. Thank God it's almost over. I agree with you on that. Most of us just don't know how to deal with the wait. Now just think about this. Who are the people who heard Isaiah's promises? And how long did they have to wait? They had to wait for centuries. In fact, they were dead and gone before that advent, first advent came to, to reality. But even the anticipation gave them hope. And here's what I want to suggest to you. That's what we need to relearn. A crucial element of hope is learning to anticipate. To anticipate in faith. To say with faith, I know God is up to something. And so I choose to believe that each day I am one day closer one day closer. One day closer to seeing God's promises fulfilled. Can you say that in your life? That each evening when you end the day and you go to bed, you're one day closer. See, today, December 20th, we're one day closer to getting through this COVID situation, right? Say right, just so I know you're still here. We are. We don't know how many more days we have, but we are one day closer, amen? And today, we're also one day closer to Jesus' second coming when all disease will be wiped out. You see, the key to having this attitude is to place your hope in the right thing. Is your hope in the right thing? Is your hope in God and his Messiah whom he has sent is your hope in God and his plan for your life and his plan for this world. 
I mean, if you're putting your hope in what you see on the news every day, that's not a good thing, right? You're, you're just going to be up and down. And, and honestly, I'm sure there are some of you here today, and, and if you got honest with yourself, that's part of the reason why you're struggling right now. You're spending too much time listening to the news. I have a pastoral word for you, two words actually. Are you ready? Stop it. Spend more time listening to God's word, less time listening to people talking about things they don't understand and maybe not even wanting to tell the truth about, okay? I'll stop with there. We need to place our hope in the right thing. And see, the way we remain hopeful is if our hope is rooted in God's promise, then our hope can remain constant. It's always available, and we can just wait. We can stay confident because we know God is up to something. We know God is at work. We know he is faithful. So I'm going to issue a challenge and an invitation to you right now, whether you have been a Christian for decades or whether you're a new believer or maybe you're someone here right now and you're just listening from the outside. You're just kind of checking things out. You're not sure what you believe. I want to challenge you, just like those who first heard these Advent promises from the prophecy of Isaiah centuries ago, will you choose to trust that, number one, God still has a plan, number two, I can totally trust Jesus, his Messiah. And number three, God will make all things right. Because when you do this, when you say yes to Jesus, to this Messiah, when you say, yes, Lord Jesus, I choose to trust you. When you do this, then you start to hear the whisper of his promise. Because God, friend, is saying to you every day, yes, I know it is winter. It is dark and cold right now, but God is saying to you every day, Christmas is coming. Christmas is coming.